This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Finding Your Bliss with host Judy Liebrach. Heard every Saturday at 1 p.m. on Zoomer Radio. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Liebrach, and today we're going to meet a fascinating married couple, both of whom have written wonderful books and help people every day with mindfulness meditation and living a happier and more peaceful life. Our guests today are author and life coach Caroline Corey, who tells her story of surviving and thriving in spite of MS, and Stephen Scatini, a mindfulness teacher who has written a fascinating book all about his journey as a former Buddhist monk. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about Caroline Curry. Caroline is an old high school friend of mine that I haven't seen since we were about 16 years old at TMR High School in Montreal. And this is the first time that we're really seeing each other in all of these years. We've seen yes. each other online, but <laughs> so it's wonderful to see you again, Caroline. We're going to be talking to Caroline, who is a leading Montreal life coach, all about how to help people develop more confidence and strengthen their self-worth. And we're also going to talk about her awesome book called Crossed Signals, which I absolutely loved and I devoured it and I highly recommend this book. Later on in the program, we'll also be talking to Caroline's husband, Stephen Scatini, about mindfulness, meditation and Buddhism. Stephen is a former Buddhist monk who has written a fabulous book as well called The Novice, Why I Became a Buddhist Monk, Why I Quit, and What I Learned. So there's lots to talk about today with our two guests who happen to be married to each other. But first, I want to tell you just a little bit more about Caroline Corey. Caroline, as I just mentioned, is a certified coach and member of the ICF International Coach Federation since 2009. She says that many of her clients are women aged 45 and over, that's our audience exactly, who have been in a toxic relationship and want to build their confidence and self-worth to make healthy decisions moving forward. She currently provides pro bono one-to-one coaching at Up With Women, a national charity helping recently homeless and at-risk women build a sustainable pathway out of poverty. Wow, that's beautiful work. She is also the author of Cross Signals, a heartwarming story that promotes the value of communication, dialogue, and awareness in families struggling with illness. A mother of four, grandmother of three, wow, and MS warrior since 1992, her health journey and how she manages a joyful life have really been an inspiration to many. She uses and coaches mindfulness for stress reduction and clarity and follows the MS gym based on neuroplasticity to create new neural pathways to reduce spasticity and strengthen and maintain mobility and overall wellness. She met her husband, Stephen Scatini, in 1999 in a working relationship to edit her book, Cross Signals. And I believe they 
ended up editing each other's books. We'll hear more about that later. <laughs> Caroline and Stephen are the co-founders of MindfulnessLive.ca, an online platform dedicated to supporting people to maintain and grow their mindfulness muscle. Love that. Formerly called Quiet Mind Public Workshops, which was established in 2003. Mm -hmm. Now I'm going to tell you a little bit more about Stephen Scatini. Stephen is a former Buddhist monk. He did this from 1974 to 1982, and he has devoted his life to the search for life's meaning and purpose. Born in England's West Country in 1952 and raised as a staunch Catholic, Stephen abandoned the faith and hitchhiked to India, where he studied with the Dalai Lama. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and the last generation of scholars from the old Tibet. He penned his soul-searching memoir of his monkhood, called The Novice, in 2009, as well as an artistic guide to meditation called It Begins With Silence. What a lovely title. 2008. He has also worked extensively as a memoirist, typographer, and illustrator. In 2003, Stephen began teaching mindfulness in the Montreal area. In 2017, he was asked to teach cancer patients at the McGill University Health Center, MUHC, and the West Island Cancer Wellness Center, WICWC, as well in Montreal. And this helps people come to terms with anxiety and the question of life itself. Stephen currently blogs at thenakedmonk.com and hosts mindfulnesslive.ca. Caroline and Stephen, welcome to Finding Your Bliss. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you for having us. <laughs> that was a very long bio, but you know yes. what? You've done all of this wonderful work, and so we have to say it all. It's very important to set up yeah. how much you've really done in this world, and uh, I'm really excited to dive in. Mm. First of all, Caroline, it's great to see you again. Oh, it's and great to see you, Judy, too. <laughs> You haven't changed a bit. <laughs> you too. Oh my gosh, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> a little gray. <laughs> and and Stephen as well. It's so nice to meet you. So as I mentioned in the virtual green room, Caroline, I really did love reading your book, Cross Signals. And I think in addition to the MS story, I just recognized the settings and the characters uh, when you talked about the dew drop in and the dugout where all the kids used to hang out. I was there. So we were there together. I know. It was so wonderful. And uh, so, by the way, for our listeners, in addition to people who are living with MS or have a family member living with MS, anybody in the Montreal area who went to TMR High or has family that went to TMR High, this is really kind of a fascinating look at that time in our lives. There were characters in the book that reminded me of Ricky and Rory Olson and all of the gang. Can you tell us more about Cross Signals? And what really motivated you to write this book? Well, I wrote Cross Signals because I felt it was really important for families to, to get a glimpse of what it's like to live with a parent who has a chronic illness. What it's like in the family, the dynamics, the communication or lack thereof communication in families. And this is something I discovered a few years before I wrote the book. So I wrote the book around 1998. I was diagnosed in 93. Um, wow. My symptoms started in 92. And then I couldn't find a, a support group that I was comfortable with. I, the first thing I did was I joined a support group at a local hospital. And I didn't like what I saw. I didn't see people empowered. I saw people victims of the disease. And they were mm -hmm. kind of giving up and just commiserating. 
So what I did was I created a support group in my community nonprofit, and I met a lot of people and their families specifically dealing with MS. And what I learned was people were dealing with an awful lot of shame and fear and anxiety. They didn't even tell their own family members, their bosses or their friends that they had MS because at the beginning you can look normal even though you have weird symptoms happening, generally 50% of the population that have MS go into states of complete um, remission and then they have relapses. So people were managing to get along, but I, I, I just didn't, I didn't feel that was the right way to go. And so when I did the workshop, I saw what was going on. And then when I had this awesome opportunity to write a book, it wasn't even my idea, but it came to me from my pediatrician who was interested in writing stories about how families cope where there's teenagers in the home because he was a pediatrician. So he had asked me to write a log, a journal. And I said, why? He says, well, I want to write a book. And I said, well, I'll try the book. So I wrote the book with the idea of helping people learn about communication to deal with the anxiety, because frankly, it's the anxiety that shuts them down. Mm -hmm. So we deal with that in the book. It's a story from the point of view of a 15 year old girl and how, you know, how she feels her fears, her anxiety. So it was really a wonderful experience to help my children and myself cope with MS. And it, it morphed into something greater than I had ever expected. Caroline, how old were you when you first got diagnosed? I know you gave me the year, but how old were you exactly? 33 at the diagnosis. It took a year to get diagnosed. So wow. I was diagnosed in 93. I was 33. What are some of the symptoms that you experienced at the outset that you can tell our listeners about? The first symptom was a, something called Lermit's reflex, which I did not have a name for. But if I tipped my head forward, my whole body would sort of vibrate. And it was very uncomfortable. It was scary. And so it took me a year of getting, you know, doctors, physiotherapy. I thought it was a pinched nerve in my neck. It seemed like the logical thing. So it took that long to MRIs and all that to finally get to a neurologist. And the system is slow. So mm -hmm. I was 33 at the time and I had three children. Wow. And I was divorced. And you were divorced. Alone. And the yeah. scene where you're walking to the washroom, to the bathtub, and you feel yourself like your legs giving out under you. Can you tell us about that? That was a, a very poignant moment in the book where I re we really felt for, for you and for all MS sufferers who have that moment. Well, I was diagnosed on the telephone, okay? After going through all the tests, the doctor calls me up. I think that's the scene you're referring to. And I just mm -hmm. collapsed. I literally collapsed because, you know, like I said, I was a single parent. Their father was living in another continent. He wasn't there. Um, and uh, I was back in school trying to get my life back in order. So, yeah, it just it, it wasn't the MS that made me crumble. It was just the anxiety and terror and fear of, oh, my God, you know, the uncertainty. Yeah. You know, you actually describe yourself as an MS warrior and that you've managed your illness primarily without taking any pharmaceutical drugs, which is pretty incredible, and relying instead on diet and lifestyle. And you say the diet and the lifestyle have been designed to counter autoimmune disease called the WALS protocol. And yeah. combined with exercise, all of this uses neuroplasticity to regain lost function in muscles and joints. And you call all of this the MS gym. What exactly is the MS gym and how do you share your experience with other MS warriors? Well, the MS gym is, is one thing and the WALS protocol is another. So the WALS protocol is the diet part that reduces inflammation. So it's very, those two things are equally important. I highly recommend you use both. 
The MS gym itself I found in 2018. So that was four years after I started the WALS protocol, which had really reduced some major symptoms, but I was still having trouble with mobility. So the diet gave me back my energy. It stopped all my vertigo and dizziness and extreme fatigue. Wow. It was incredible within six weeks. And Dr. Wells herself is getting a peer-reviewed studies, you know, that are showing the science. It's not all anecdotal at all. So that's the first thing. Yeah. And then the MS Gym is this wonderful coach trainer named Trevor Wicken. He is like a motivational speaker and a brilliant, you know, neurophysiotherapist uh, with more wow. degrees than you can count. And so that's, what he does is wow. these videos. And I follow along every single day for 45 minutes or so. And they're specifically designed to deal counteracting spasticity, strengthening your muscles, reprogramming your neural pathways. So I have learned, you know, where I couldn't feel my feet on the floor doing these exercises and massages and whatever, it restores it. I'm not walking like a normal person. I'm using a walker now, but I'm still no, I was so ill before all of these things to everything completely changed between the MSGM and the WALS protocol. I lost weight. My skin tone's better. Everything is, you know, nobody can believe wow. that I've had MS 30 years, you know, but the MS gym keeps me strong, keeps my muscles going. And it's, I'm trying to maybe be able to walk on my own. It's not my goal because it seems like a too far reaching goal, but it's just to be able to feel well, continue my work wow. and live my life. I really can't recommend it enough. <laughs> Can we go back to the walls protocol? What are some things, you know, for listeners who are suffering from MS, just some basic foods and ideas that they could do right now? What would be some of your suggestions? Right now, you stop all sugar, you stop all dairy, and you stop all gluten. That's the first thing you should say. And grain to a certain extent. We can still have a bit of rice. She has a book called The Walls Protocol. I highly recommend for anybody with any chronic illness. It's dealing with inflammation. So it's not just for MS. Because we're not dealing with MS, we're dealing with strengthening the mitochondria in the body. We're just trying to make our body as healthy as possible. So you give up those things and you ingest more greens, three cups of dark leafy greens, three cups of you know bright colors and three cups of sulfur rich vegetables. So she describes it very clearly. And we used to have a, a something on our fridge, just making sure that what we were eating fit the protocol. And we wow. have not cheated. I have not cheated once in seven years. We do not eat cheese or bread or any of those things. And there's so many substitutes out there that it's not as bad as it would have been, let's say, 10, 15 years ago. So there are, we grow our kale and, you know. (laughs) So great. Caroline, I also found it interesting. There are so many similarities, I think, in our life and our work. We're both life coaches. Can -hmm. you tell me how you began your journey as a life coach? You're a certified life coach in the Montreal area. My goodness. Well, you know, my kids were finally leaving the nest. I was a stay-at-home mom for most of their life. And I needed something else in my life to do. I needed more. I was working with Stephen. I was helping with his editing his book, The Novice, and building the Quiet Mind workshops, I should say. But I needed something for myself, kind of. And I knew I had more to give and to offer. So I discovered reading one day an article in the newspaper about life coaching. And I thought, that's perfect. I have to say, I was (laughs) studying psychology before I got married. So that was, I was on the same path. You know, this is something I always wanted to do and thought I wouldn't be able to because I got married young, had children, went back to school to finish my degree, got MS, and that shut me down to finish, you know, that educational part. So this was so wonderful 
And uh, I found a school in uh, Ottawa, Integral Coaching Canada, which was just incredible. I was so inspired. And, uh, you know, that's how it started. Started my own practice. And I've been doing that ever since now. We're over 13 years. You've described that a lot of your work is empowering women by example, which makes so much sense. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, you know, when uh, I was with Stephen doing the public workshops, I was at every one of those workshops and people saw us sort of play with each other. You know, he would be teaching the mindfulness and he would be giving his sessions. And then during question and answers, I would be getting involved. So they got to see us sort of our, you know, how we were with each other. He would talk a lot about our relationship and tell up stories. So people started to get to know me and trust me and talk to me after class. So they were pretty much a big part of my my first clients, you know. And over time, they started to see my story come out through these banterings in the workshops. And then I started my own website and started doing my coaching. And it just seemed so natural for people to come to me. To see, They read my story. I have a blog. They knew where I was coming from. And it just sort of evolved to relationship issues, sometimes coupled, but mostly women, you know, over 45, like I said before. And and they see how, wow, you know, bottom line is relationships are everything, right? <laughs> a relationship coach and life coach is the same thing. Of course. So, you know, it's just an evolution that was really beautiful. And yes, they read my blogs and they see how I live with the MS. That's a big deal too. You also in 1995 created my personal power support group for fellow MS yeah. sufferers and their families. Can you tell us about that? Because I think that's wonderful for our listeners to know about that group. Yes, that's what I was saying at the beginning when I learned from that personal power workshop that I created in 1995. That was specifically for people with MS and their families. And that's where I learned how how little they really understood about their own body. I mean, I only had MS maybe four or five years. And I knew more about the disease than some of those people who had it for 20 or 30 years. Wow. It was mind boggling. They had no idea. And the doctors do not tell their patients, certainly not when I was, you know, even now, they do not inform or support their patients. They just tell them you've got it. And there's very little other that they do. So people are pretty well unaware of things like what I did. I mean, they just assume better take the first thing that the doctors offer, which is a drug. And I said no to drugs. I knew from the beginning. And even when I was diagnosed, there were no drugs. So I watched them come on the market. I even tried to in studies you know, I read that. but these people were very, very, very lost. And I, I saw a need there to fill. Amazing. You know, when we don't have an illness and we're just living in the world that we're living in, especially these days with COVID and the pandemic and just the state of the world right now, it can be so difficult to live with uncertainty, whether you're very young or whether you're, you know, I say whether you're a teen all the way to 105, it, it's so difficult to live with uncertainty. But you seem to have mastered the art of living with uncertainty. Can you tell us how you've achieved this? Well, I would have to give all the credit to my husband for that, because I think mindfulness is the key to living with uncertainty. You live in the present moment. You see where you are. You appreciate. You're grateful for what you have. And then you look at what's missing or what's getting you stuck and you mm-hmm. examine and explore in a gentle way without judgment. So these are the tools that I learned from mindfulness. And this is exactly what I help my clients with. And so many of them are dealing with the fear of uncertainty. And, 
you know, just by living with something like MS, which is totally uncertain, especially in the early days when you yeah. don't know when something's going to happen. I have the progressive kind now, but I've actually sort of shut it down with the protocols that I'm doing. But for most people, wow. it's like every day is a different day. So how do we live with that? Well, we learn acceptance. We learn self-love. We learn how to accept what we used to think was the unacceptable and see the habits and the ways that we get stuck ourselves in these patterns of thinking and pulling ourselves down into this rabbit hole, you know, so that we learn how to recognize these patterns and get out of them. You know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Totally. I totally do. This is a great time to bring in Stephen because you met your soulmate despite being a single mom with MS and four kids and you created new purpose and meaning as a life coach and mindfulness mentor. And I want to hear all about how you met and how it changed both of your lives when we come back after this short commercial break. We'll be right back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM 740 FM 96.7. And I'm here with Caroline Corey and her husband, Stephen Scatini. And we've been having a wonderful conversation with Caroline, and we're now going to hear from Stephen. There's so much symmetry between both of you. And I was asking just before the break how you met and what characterizes this relationship and sets it apart from all the rest. Oh, hi, Judy. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So, first of all, before I say anything else, Caroline uh, put all the credit for her, the way she deals with MS, she puts it all on me. It's not true. Mm-hmm. She has an attitude and an ability to look at the, a willingness to look at the positive side, which is really unusual. Um, so, that's really why she's in such good shape. Mm-hmm. That's so great. Um, as for how we met, well, she had her book and it needed editing. And we had a mutual friend who put us together and said, hey, this guy does editing. So we met <laughs> and um, we started a conversation that night that is still going on. <laughs> That's <laughs> fabulous. She was, she was the person that um, I just never expected to meet. Wow. She was like an ideal in my mind, but I never really thought it would happen. But the conversation just flowed from the beginning. We're on the same topics. We're on the same wavelength. And it was just, it was wonderful. Do you know what I'm going to just add to that before I start talking to you about your book is uh, it's interesting, but Caroline in high school was that girl as well. She was a golden girl. She Uh was the it girl. I actually have a picture I'm going to share with you later of her from that time, actually from my sweet 16. Um, But she was actually the it girl and the golden girl of TMR High. So I just wanted to add that. So I think you you were on the right track. 
<laughs> Stephen, I want to also congratulate you on your incredible book. Very well written, by the way, The Novice, Why I Became a Buddhist Monk, Why I Quit, and What I Learned. You just have such an inspiring life story. So before your final exams at university, you abandoned everything, hitchhiked to India, you almost died twice from drug addiction and illness. You met Tibetans and became an ordained monk for eight years. What led you to become a Buddhist monk in the first place? Golly, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm going to actually read, before you answer, I'm going to read something from the book that I love. Oh, and here okay. it is. And I just want you all to listen to this because it's just a, and you should all read this book because it is fascinating. For a brief shining moment, I aspired to an awakening of transcendental light and bliss. The illusion faded. I cried bitterly. But in time, the simple truth settled down again, plain as day. I was and always had been staring me in the face. Can you tell us about that moment for you? Well, let's go back to the first question and then I'll segue. Why did I get involved with Buddhism? I have to go back one more step, which is the Catholicism. I was raised by nuns and then monks at school uh, for many years. And although I rejected their teaching, one thing they were successful at was planting this idea in my head that ordinary matters are not enough. We have to be concerned with something more, that um, I needed to question you know, the purpose of my life. And it had to be full in some way. And I found that my teachers weren't able to answer that question, but the question remained after I left the church. And I explored all sorts of reading. I got into astrology, astronomy, palmistry, dowsing, all of that stuff. I was just sort of rolling through it, just looking to see what was there. And then I got hooked on the writings of Alan Watts, who was very, very uh, famous back in the 60s and 70s for bringing ideas from Asia to the West. And that was where my interest in Buddhism began. Buddhism is often presented as being a relatively scientific approach, a sort of a philosophy rather than a religion. And it can be, not necessarily, but it can be that. And so that enabled me to sort of approach it in a secular way or a non-religious way and ask real questions, not just hypothetical questions. So it appealed to me. It appealed to you. Can I just ask you this now, because I was wondering about this as I was reading all this, and I know maybe our listeners are as well. What's the difference between a Tibetan and a Buddhist monk? Well, a Tibetan is someone who comes from Tibet, and he might be a Buddhist monk, or it might be a woman, it might be a Buddhist nun, but yes. Buddhism is vast. If you go back to before the Chinese Revolution, Buddhism was actually the biggest religion in the world. There were more Buddhists than any other, and there are more schools of Buddhism. There are more systems of philosophy of Buddhism than any other. And like most other religions, they periodically fight with each other and disagree, and there have been wars over it as well. It's mm. not unusual. So Tibetan Buddhism is a particular sort of Buddhism, which is, uh, it really was founded um, very much uh, in North East India, Northern India anyway, and um, it basically took over from shamanism and very primitive religions which were already in Tibet. And it did that not by just destroying shamanism or challenging it, but by incorporating it. This is the way religions spread. They absorb. So this was a Buddhism which comes from the south. It's relatively dry philosophy, 
and it encounters the Tibetans, and the Tibetans add all this color and shape and stories and wealth, and it's very, very rich. And um, it's also full of superstition. So it's a big mishmash. You can't just take it and swallow it. You've got to work with it. How would you describe those eight years of being a Buddhist monk and living in a monastery? Like, can you just paint us a brief picture of what a typical day looked like? And I'm sure there was no typical day, but just choose a day. Eight years, that's a long time. What was that like? Well, first of all, it was a relief. It was a huge relief for me because of uh, my life outside of the monastery was chaotic and painful. And uh, the, this was the first place that I really felt that I found a home and that I was accepted. Wow. So um, I came to it with that attitude. And then I just settled into it. And each day we would, uh, there'd be time for meditation in the morning. Then we would study. We had to learn Tibetan, scriptural, written Tibetan, as well as spoken Tibetan. Our teachers were all, they only spoke in Tibetan. Wow. So we had to follow the classes. In the morning, we'd study, uh, we'd have classes, and then in the afternoons, we would debate, wow. uh, which is a process of sort of analyzing what you've learned and questioning it and seeing where it leads you. Wow. And that's done in a very stylized way in Tibetan. There's, it looks like a dance. If you ever look at a movie of Tibetan monks uh, debating, it's very theatrical, and it's a lot of fun, and it burns off a lot of energy, a lot of Young male hormones, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Was there physical exercise in your day? Was, you know, how would you describe the food? Like, just give us a taste of what it was like. No, there was no physical exercise encouraged. I found my own. Um, Most of my tea, one of the things I noticed when I actually moved into a Tibetan monastery in India was that most of the older monks waddled because... They were all overweight. And when you sit for 12 or 15 hours a day in a cross-legged position, it does something to your knees. And um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's different. So they all ended up basically as waddlers at old age. So I was very careful to to avoid that. Um, How are your knees? uh, Delicate. Delicate, yeah. They're delicate. Yeah, I damaged them in those years, for sure. I always wondered when you're meditating and you're sitting for that long and you have pain, I once heard that that was required. That was sort of the de rigueur is, yes, go past the pain, witness the pain, see the pain, acknowledge it and let it go and sit anyway. Is that what would happen? Well, I don't really go for that. No, I I don't. um, There's ideas like this that putting up with pain is good or or being celibate makes you more blessed somehow it makes you more holy Uh, i think this is all nonsense you know this is all a matter of preferences but i did find a way to deal with the pain which was really uh it was quite eye-opening and i got the advice from my teacher in sri lanka who said if you can't meditate because you're in so much pain then let go of the original object of your meditation and focus on the pain focus on your knees. And so I did that. And I sat and when the pain came, I felt it, I analyzed it, I experienced it, I went through it. And at a certain Mm -hmm. point, the relationship with the pain changes. Wow. You realize how we actually construct our experiences, not completely, things happen to us, but we also respond to them. And, And somewhere in there, in between what happens and the way we respond is the experience itself. And we have a say in that experience. It's not just something that happens to us, but our life is not something completely passive. Mm 
And this is the jewel. This is what about Buddhism attracted me, is the fact that I can have a say in my life. Do we create our own suffering? Uh, well, not all of it. Only about 98%. <laughs> only about 98%. What was it like to meet the Dalai Lama? Can you tell us about that? Um, Oh, that was very, very fun, actually, because um, I just come from South. He lives in North India, and I just come from South India. I'd been there for a year and a half in a very large monastery, Sarajay Monastic University. And um, my experience there had been not what I expected at all. My eyes were open to the reality of Tibetan monastic politics, for example. I saw the way in which things played out, um, the way in which the Tibetan hierarchy works, which is very complicated. Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of hard questions, and I didn't trust all of my teachers, but I did trust the Dalai Lama, not because I knew him, but because of what I'd read. And I'd read his, I'd studied his books quite quite well at the time. So I was up there in Dharamsala, and um, so I went to his house, and I knocked on the door, <laughs> and um, his servant answered, and I said, I'd like to meet His Holiness, please. And he said, well, I'm sorry, but wow. he's busy right now. Can you come back in a couple of hours? <laughs> so I said, okay. So I went back in a couple of hours, and uh, he sat with me for about an hour and a half. Uh, he allowed me to tape record the conversation. Um, wow. I've lost that. That's gone now, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what happened wow. to it. But I, uh, that tape, uh, we actually copied it and sent it around to quite a few people who were very interested in that. Wow. So that's how I got to meet him. And um, he's just a very lovely person to be with. He makes you feel very good about yourself. He's good at that. He's good at empathy. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I have an observation to make about him, which is people always assume that he's a very, very special person, and that's why he's in the job. But I think it's the job that makes him a very special person. Imagine. You are the Dalai Lama. Everybody who comes to you is smiling. Everybody who comes to you thinks you're a god, basically. Yeah. You're, you're a living Buddha. Okay? Yeah. You're at the peak of this hierarchical system. You've got this circle after circle of protectors around you, making sure that nobody bad gets in. I mean, how hard is it to be cheerful and friendly and <laughs> empathetic? <laughs> you know? Yes. So um, he's a lovely guy. He's a very, very nice man. Um, I don't agree with everything he says, and uh, I don't agree with everything he's done. But um, I did have that observation, and it was was a real eye-opener for me, because before that point, I had this tendency to sort of elevate everybody, and well, the the lamas are special, and they're they're more than the rest of us. And that's a very unhelpful attitude, Mm -hmm. because these people are supposed to be role models. If this is a role model, I need to be able to think of myself doing what this person is doing. Mm But if that person has psychic powers and flies around in the night and visits other planets, then that's no role model for me because I never expect to do that. That is fascinating stuff. I want to talk to you next about your book, The Novice, but we're going to go on a short commercial break first. And when we come back, I'd love to talk about a section that really touched me that had to do with you and your mom. More with Finding Your Bliss and Stephen Scatini and Caroline Corey when we get back. Back in a moment. Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years. CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. 
In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff. CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together. We are back, and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio, AM 740, FM 96.7. And I'm here with Caroline Corey and Stephen Scatini. And Stephen, just before the break, I was asking you about your book, The Novice. And there's a wonderful chapter in your book called With New Eyes, and your mother is looking after you after you were in a Madian hospital. And she told you how worried she was about you and how she moved heaven and earth to place a phone call with you. Can you tell us what was meaningful about that for you? Well, my mother wasn't with me. She was in England. Um, and I was up in North Pakistan. And um, I didn't actually get the phone call. Hmm. The day she finally got through, it, it took a long time to get phone calls through in those days. The day she actually got the call through to the hospital, I'd left. Mm-hmm. I'd just gone up to another village further up the valley mm-hmm. to escape people. I was on the run from people at the time. Wow. And so I heard about this later on, and I was quite touched. And, of course, I also felt very guilty because <laughs> it's my mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's really the effect it had on And I also felt, I felt this sense of isolation for the first time. Initially, I'd gone to India, and I'd, I'd traveled to these places because I was trying to be alone. I was trying to get away from people. I saw people as the, the source of my problems. Mm-hmm. And after I'd left the hospital, and I did find this solitude, and I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And so my whole attitude suddenly turned around. And it was after that that I heard that my mother tried to contact me, and I realized, oh, that's nice. Wow. You know, maybe she does love me. <laughs> You have such a fascinating story. Your parents met at a circus, and I found this just fascinating stuff. Your mom was a dancer, your dad was a lion tamer, and you didn't want to end up like your father not knowing yourself because your father didn't believe that human nature could change. What do you believe? Well, I believe, well, I don't know. Human nature is a big, you know, it's a big phrase, but yeah, we can change. Uh, most importantly, what we can change is our reactivity. Mm-hmm. Initially, I thought, and the reason I was following all these spiritual paths and things and eventually ended up with Buddhism is because I was hoping to change myself. I wanted to change into somebody else, mm-hmm. um, which is not possible, obviously. But it is possible to change our reactivity. And it doesn't sound like much. But when you do it and when you start seeing the scope of that, it changes everything. It changes your entire life. It changes your relationship with people. It changes the way you see yourself. It changes your sense of joy, happiness, your ability to be happy. It's, it's, it's everything. Um, we are basically reactive until we choose to become conscious. Do you think that the natural pathway to achieve this is meditation, is to just to flex that meditation muscle, which allows you to really be mindful in the present moment and not as reactive that meditation is the pathway to achieving that? Or is there another tip on how to not be reactive? Well, that's that's one component. Um, the most important thing is to catch yourself in the act. Mm-hmm. Okay, So meditation is the preparation for that. It's just practice. 
So I sit here for a few minutes each morning and I meditate and then I'm sort of primed. So later on in the day, when, um, you know, Caroline is very sweet to me and says something nice and I snap at her because I'm, I'm not very nice, then in that moment, if I see myself snapping or if I see, oh, I'm feeling grumpy and I'm about to say something bad, then that's the moment at which I can turn it off. I can let go. So I have to be present in that moment. That's the key. Or I remind him. Yeah, you remind him. I I prefer not. (laughs) I'm mindful too. (laughs) You're mindful too. Even as a child, you were seeking peace of mind and fulfillment. So this is something that's been a lifelong quest and odyssey for you. Do you remember the first time this became apparent to you? Because this is not something a lot of kids think about, Mm -hmm. but you did. Yeah. I was about, um, I think I was about 12 or 13, and I was with a friend of mine, Stuart, and we lived on the outskirts of Gloucester, so we used to walk through these very quiet lanes down to a little country pub where they didn't mind serving 14-year-olds. Well, I must have been 14, yeah. And we'd gone down there one night, and we came back, and we were just talking like teenage boys do, and we were leaning against a, a hedge, And I looked up at the sky, and it was just a beautiful night. The moon was clear, and the stars were bright. And and we just started having this conversation about why we're here and what's the point. You know, all those big questions that children ask. And um, Stuart was just playing around. He was just having fun with the conversation. But I realized that this is what I want to do. This This is what matters to me. And I just had that incredible sense of familiarity, not with the answers, but with the question. It just seemed natural to me. That's so wonderful. I just had to interject when you were saying serving 14-year-olds, Caroline, that made me think of Crazy Horse on Cote d'Ange, where they would serve <laughs> liquor to 14-year-olds. I don't know if you ever went there, but that was... Oh, gosh, yes. Stephen, <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to know, you are a leading mindfulness expert in Montreal and in the world. And I'm wondering if mindfulness is a new religion and what it has to do with Buddhism. Oh, what a great question. Yes, it has become a religion. You know, we used to talk about, um, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Okay, this was maybe 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. We were all trying to make this distinction, you know, like I, I'm a Buddhist, but I'm not religious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm spirit. Okay, that's what it meant. And then the word spiritual, well, by now, I mean, it's, it, it means so many things that you, it's hard to use it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I really, I avoid the word like crazy because it invites people to think that I believe in all sorts of things that I don't believe in. Mm-hmm. I'm basically pretty secular and pretty scientific in my approach, and I'm not looking for mystical answers. I don't expect them, and I don't think they matter very much if you do. Mm-hmm. I think the answers. So life uh, lie in our experience, not in our ideas or our theories. Mm-hmm. You asked... Uh, is it a religion? Is it a religion? Yeah. The problem with religion is that it tells us the way things are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So you automatically have this problem of reconciling it with how things actually are. Mm-hmm. Okay? That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Okay? We think the world should be full of you know brotherly and sisterly love, but it isn't. So what do we do with that? Um, Buddhism is not really concerned with beliefs. In fact, the Buddha himself was pretty vicious. He mocks believers and Brahmins, uh, you know, mercilessly. And he focused entirely on experience. This is where you are. This is what you're doing. How are you doing? Is this working out? If not, why not? Figure it out. 
be here and now. It's all within your hands. So he he was not at all a believer, although he had to deal with a world in which everybody had beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, but that in that way, I think what the Buddha taught is not a religion. Mm-hmm. What the Buddha taught is not a religion. However, mm-hmm. Buddhism is what's happened in the 2,600 years since the Buddha died. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole bunch of religions in there and beliefs and uh, superstitions, as I've said. There's all sorts of stuff. It's a big mishmash. I'm just curious about what kept you in the monastery for eight years and what made you leave at the end of the eight years. What kept me in was the content. The Tibetans have a fabulous system of training and learning. They have a beautiful uh, tradition in compassion meditations it's very, very appealing. It's an incredibly colorful tradition. If you go to the south, there are two basic forms of Buddhism, Southern Buddhism and Northern Buddhism. So Southern Buddhism, which you find in, in uh, Sri Lanka and Thailand and um, uh, Myanmar, this is very dry. or It appears very dry and it's very practical. And, and it's sort of, um, you feel that sense of renunciation and, and being withdrawn from society. Whereas with the Tibetans, it's the opposite. It seems like an incredibly social religion. The noisiest place I've ever lived is in a Tibetan monastery. Okay, mm. It's everybody shouting and screaming and debating and reciting. And, and it's all fun. They're all having a lot of fun. They laugh a lot, but it's very different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What made you leave? What made you say it's time to go? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, I started to get insight into Tibetan monastic politics and into mm-hmm. uh, the reality behind it. That image, that beautiful color and, and shape, and that you, you must have seen the illustrations, the paintings of Tibetan Buddhism, the statues, they're very evocative. Um, that's what drew me in. Speaking this exotic language that I didn't understand, that drew me in. But then I started to understand it. I started to speak it, and I started to, after a while, started to see some of the nuance, and I started to see the way in which people related to each other within Tibetan uh, Buddhism. And I started to see the hierarchy, and I recognized it as an absolutely medieval institution in every way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started to see holes in it, and I realized that as much as I loved the Buddha and what he taught, I did not want to be a part of this. Mm-hmm. Was it a difficult culture shock, big time culture shock to come back to oh, yeah. your regular life? Oh, to come back to the West. Oh, it was, yeah, yeah it was huge. It was much harder than going out there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It took me years. It took me years, really, to get my feet back on the ground. It was only when I met mm-hmm. Caroline, really, which was oh. about 18 years after I'd left the monastery. So wow. those 18 years were the hardest years. The, those were the hardest years of my life. For sure. Wow. wow. Also very transformative in many ways, but um, lonely. Lonely, yeah. Lonely. What yeah. is the main thing you took with you from the monastery that you still live with today? I'm sure there's many things, but is there one tenet of all of it that just stayed with you? Not one tenet, but, but one, it's the point of view. Having gone there and lived with them, having learned their language, because when you learn a language, you, you learn how other people think as well. It's mm-hmm. different. Mm-hmm. And that point of view that I acquired, I then turned it back on my own home, on my own culture, on my own language. And then I saw it with new eyes. And that, that's mm-hmm. the biggest thing that it gave me. It gave me the ability to question 
our reality and the things that we take for granted in a way that other people don't quite get mm-hmm. to question it. Mm-hmm. I know what everyone is thinking is really how we can all find more peace and live more meaningful lives. What is the best way to strengthen our mindfulness muscle and achieve this? <laughs> to practice every day. Yeah. Yep. To be interested. There's one precondition for mindfulness, for a mindfulness practice. You have to trust that you can change. Mm-hmm. You have to trust that you can do it. Mm-hmm. Not everybody has that self-trust, and you can't give it to anybody. Mm-hmm. You can't hand it over. You can't give them a, an exercise and say, here, this will build you. I mean, you can build your self-trust, but you have, there has to be some there to begin with. So mm-hmm. that's really the key. Once you have that, then you practice a little bit every day. You, you put value in introspection. Mm-hmm. Um, you take the time to stop. And it's not easy. I've been doing this for 50 years. And when it comes time for me to go and sit on my cushion for five minutes, I think, nah, I don't have time. (laughs) I don't want to. I don't feel like it. So that that voice, that resistance is still there. So I still have to Mm -hmm. just say, Stephen, shut up and sit down. And as soon as I'm there, I'm happy. But there's that transition. You've always got to make that transition. So you have to be willing to stop. And that's so hard in our society. Mm -hmm. That's why you made Mindfulness Life. That's why I made Mindfulness Life. (laughs) That was my next question. You teach mindfulness and meditation three times a week, three times a week, everyone, for 30 minutes on Zoom. How can people access that and get in on that right now? Well, you visit mindfulnesslive.ca, because it's a Canadian site, and it tells you all about it there. It's very simple. We meet... uh, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays at lunchtime. If you can't make it, you can pick up the recording afterwards. But what I'm trying to do there is to simply create a structure for people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Space. Mindfulness is simple. It's not complicated. Most people who are introduced to it love it, but they don't continue. They try to continue, but they don't. One of the reasons is because most people who are into mindfulness do not live with other people who are into mindfulness. Mm. In most cases, the spouse isn't. The children aren't. It's unusual. So we tend to feel isolated and alone. So we have to have the support is absolutely essential. Yes. In November 2020, you launched your new long-term project, Mindfulness Live, and you host also a private Facebook support group for anyone interested in mindfulness to complement your growing community at Mindfulness Live. Can you just tell us briefly about that? Well, the Facebook group is really just a vehicle for us to make people aware of the actual practice, the half hour. Great. Um, and then to bring people in. That's what it's all about. So we encourage people to join. It's a group. And we have conversations and uh, nice. just talk about the benefits of mindfulness and get people, just get just introduce people to the idea that other people are out there like them. Exactly. You're not alone. There are other people who, you're, you know, we're all sort of a little weird here taking the time to go against the grain of society and stop and, you know, gaze at our navel. It's weird. So you need you need a little bit of encouragement and support. What is bliss for Stephen Scatini? Bliss for me is conversation with this lady. (laughs) 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 And that's my next question. What is bliss for Caroline Curry? Oh, my God. Well, thank you, sweetie. Oh, I know what yours is. You, well, told me, you told me this morning. I did? Yeah. Well, I think he's referring to the feeling that I feel when I see the impact of the coaching on my clients. 
and it's every day. It's almost every conversation. And it's just beautiful to see, especially when they're, you know, older. I have a client who's 73 and she's had this issue her whole life and she's seen all these different people. And then we have this conversation and we starting the process and right away she's feeling, you know, more confident, more relaxed, more trusting herself, you know, that kind of stuff. That's, that's my bliss. And of course my grandchildren, beautiful things. And of course my husband and my children. I was going to also <laughs> ask you because you're on as a married couple, which is a bit of an unusual thing for us. We've done it before. We had Amy Skye and her husband, Mark Jordan, on the show, but it's typically one person at a time. So what is bliss for both of you as a couple? What is bliss for us? Our brainstorming, our conversations. Mm -hmm. We're always working, but it doesn't feel like work, you know, because we have to market ourselves and get out there and do all that grunt work. Mm -hmm. And we're we're lived together 24-7. Both our offices are here. You know, we just, we're just always around each other, but the bliss is to me is the way we are moving forward together on this journey of helping others. But of course, what it brings to us, you know, the growth, it's lovely. So lovely. It's all about people. It's all about connecting to people. And, and, and we're in a position where, you know, we're surrounded by people who are flowering. It's a real privilege. You're taking after the Dalai Lama and you're doing the kind of work that he did in this world. It's wonderful. What is the best way for people to reach out to you, Caroline, and connect with you on social media for your life coaching and all the wonderful things that you do? Well, I would say go to my website, Koori.com, C-O-U-R-E-Y.com. Yeah, that has my blog and it talks about, you know, the workshops I've done and you can reach me through my contact page there or Facebook. Or Facebook. And what is the best way for people to reach out to you, Stephen, and connect with you on social media, etc.? The best way would be through my website, scatini.com. Uh, mindfulnesslive.ca is also, uh, that page is on that website. So either way, you'll find me there. I'm on, uh, I don't do a lot of social media. LinkedIn is probably the best place mm-hmm. to get a hold of me. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. That too. <laughs> that's great. I want to thank you both so much, Caroline and Stephen, for being on the show today. I know it was a long time in coming, putting it together, pulling it together, (laughs) making it work. But I think this was actually the perfect time to do it. So I'm really thrilled that you were here today. That's great. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Judy. It's been fun. So much fun. Great to have you here. Each week, we spotlight a mindfulness expert or a yoga person or an author or a musician, a celebrity, or anyone really who has found and is following their bliss so that they can help you find your bliss. So if you're a person that has found your bliss, just write to us at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. We typically, most often, also feature a singer or a musician on the show. So if you are a singer, please write to us at music at findingyourbliss.com. And I'm also a life coach. You can write to me at fyb at findingyourbliss.com. And you should also write to Caroline because she is an awesome coach who's doing beautiful work in this world. So definitely reach out to her. As well, you can always find us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. And I invite you to reach out. It's been wonderful having these wonderful guests here today and so excited to keep following what you do now and and, uh, your beautiful journeys in life. And thanks for making the world a better place. Aw, thank you, Judy. Thanks for featuring us, Judy. It means a lot. Thank, thank you. you.
I would like to thank all of our wonderful guests for being on the show today. Thank you to Caroline Corey and Stephen Scatini. Also, a big thank you to Mag Ruffman, Siobhan Kiley, Associate Producer and Audio Engineer, Naira Amani, Senior Editor, Lauren Kaminsky, Video Editor, Sierra Rodriguez, Audio Producer, Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Liebrach, reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.